I had to shake him on my last case, big O don't play. Alright guys, welcome to another episode of the Musky Hunks podcast. I'm one of your five hosts this evening, Ryan Reed. We also have several other hunks on the line here tonight, as well as our guest for this evening. So first and foremost, I'm going to start off, who do we have on the call here? We have Mr. Donnie Swink. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And Tom. And Tom. (laughs) We have Mr. Nick Fiesler from the Great White North. Yeah, reporting in. Well below freezing, Tom's favorite uh, steelhead holes almost frozen over. Oh, that's no, that's no, no good. No bueno. Donnie, I'm surprised you didn't say hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. (laughs) Keep you on your toes. Hi, Nick. All right, we also have the Croc Man himself, Mr. Tom, Pennsylvania Monsters, Venata. Hello. You know, you can just call me Tom Ryan. You don't know. I like my Instagram. So that's like my World of Warcraft name. Like, this is the real life. You can call me Tom here. Pennsylvania that's, Monsters. That's my thing. I don't know. I uh, We also have Owen Seaman on the line. What's up, guys? Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening, Mr. Big O's Bucktails. And our guest for this evening, Evan Shaw's from Shaw's Bait Company, local bait maker here in the state of Pennsylvania. So, Evan, it's good to have you on tonight. Thanks, guys. Good to see you all. Happy talking muskies. <laughs> talking muskies. We're, we're pumped up. Anytime we get somebody else on, I feel like this group gets extra, extra excited like Tom's cat tonight. Get a little giddy. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. So what are we going to talk about tonight? We've got Evan on. We've got uh, Hunks Assemble. So, Owen, what are we going to get into? Well, first, uh, we the purpose of having Evan on. I mean, uh, first we have Musky, uh, the Musky Max uh, program, or I guess weekend coming up here in March, and we in the next over the next couple of weeks, I guess, I guess over the next four weeks or so, we're going to be covering a number of different local bait makers and uh ryan uh, Ryan has already done this in the past in certain ways on his on his youtube channel um but we want to take you know this is more of a long long term like i guess uh long form format intimate dive yeah where we can like really talk about these things so like not only do we want to talk to evan about his bait company uh, and what he's what he has prepared, how he got started, what he has coming for for Musky Max. We also want to ask, you know, we also want to get into kind of Evan's knowledge of local musky history, including some uh, he's done some some research, uh, I guess, above and beyond what a normal what, what you know you or I might do in terms of uh, the the Louis Spray musky the the record pennsylvania record musky and how it might fit in i guess nationally and we'll get into that with uh, larry ramsell and and kind of his book and i i have i know i have questions for evan regarding that but uh that's kind of the plan for tonight so really we want to kind of introduce evan uh tell us a little bit about yourself and you know and and really what is shoss shoss bait company sounds good guys uh so I'm Evan Shaw. So I'm, um, you know, just a local Pittsburgh guy here. Started musky fishing back in maybe 2005 or so. Um, 
and uh, just kind of going into it through Howard Wagner and, um, you know, started to fish some of the local Western Pennsylvania lakes. And, and around that time I was, uh, I had, had tied a lot of flies and things like that and um, got into making some hard baits and things like that and was testing them out and, um, you know, some of the local creeks and stuff like that and it caught some muskies on them and, and kind of just, you know, turned into something that was really interesting to me. I've always been intrigued by fooling a fish into eating something that was, you know, tricking them into eating, um, you know, whether it was a fly or, or a crankbait or topwater or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, from there, it kind of just turned into, uh, and it, you know, like everybody says, once you catch a first muskie, it's kind of changes you. Fishing is uh, different after that, and you start getting into um, you know, trying to catch bigger fish and, and fishing trophy waters and traveling further than you normally would. And, you know, I, I don't really think there's any other type of fisherman that can relate to it. Um, than, you know, like a trophy bass fisherman or something like that, that's, that's going different, you know, or walleye fisherman or something like that, where you're, you're moving across the country and fishing different bodies of water. Um, but really just kind of, you know, expanded from that into um you know just making let me let me stop styles you. of crankbaits sure let me stop you there uh like okay so you said you're from pittsburgh are we yeah. talking like in like directly in pittsburgh or are you like in the south north east west like where where'd you where'd you start where'd yeah, you grow up live in the city so i i mean i grew up probably 10 well five minutes away from where i'm at now i live in carrick um uh, just adjacent to the Liberty Tunnels and Route 51. Um, yep, I lived in I lived in Brookline for uh, I think eight years, so I'm I'm very sucks, very familiar yeah. with the area. Not too far away then, yeah. No, so uh, so okay, so you like, did you get started with your dad, or like did a family member get you started? Like what what got you? You know, yeah, don't just I mean, stop, go from bass fishing to catching <laughs> muskies on your own plugs. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I um. So I, I was really big into fly fishing. Um, my grandfather passed away when I was maybe eight years old and uh, handed down a, a fly tying kit, which I really didn't know anything about how to use. Um, and I just started holding a hook in my hand and wrapping thread around it and, you know, eventually turned into um, a business, honestly, um, where I was tying flies. Um did a, a lot of saltwater stuff and um, got into the Pennsylvania fly tying competition and things like that. So um, really just, you know, my family was into fishing. They kind of got me started into it. Um, but I hit a point where it just, it, it went down a path that was completely different than anybody else where, um, you know, I, I got into uh, fishing lakes and bass fishing and stuff like that and uh, my uncle my uncle was the one who would take me most of the time and um he was you know traditional you know pull up to a spot um and you fished in that spot all day you know you just yeah you, you, you sat there you cast out your, your lines and waited you know for a bite on your bobber or whatever it might be and and you know that was it and um i want to say i was in high school and met a group of uh, that was from Baldwin High School that, that taught fly tying and mentoring. 
and it was called Family Ties. And through Family Ties, got into fly tying and uh, rod building, fly fishing, um, and they did some trips and things like that. But through that club, I met some other people, and um, you know, really started to fish different places with them. And um, one of the places was down in West Virginia, Terra Alta, West Virginia, is a resort called Alpine Lake. And there's giant bass in this place. I really didn't know too much about bass fishing. Um, so, you know, went out and stocked up on rapalas and jigs and stuff like that. And um, really spent, I think it was Memorial Day weekend, fishing around this lake. And it might have been, I don't know, 300 acres or so. Um, and it's wooded. There was kind of like a trail around the whole thing. But like covering water, not in the boat, but fishing from shore. And that was the first time that I saw the results of like actually chasing the fish and not waiting for the fish to come to you. And it was like amazing. I mean, we probably think I caught it. That was the first time I caught a fish that was a bass that was over five pounds. I got a seven pounder, um, a six pounder, five pounder, and a, you know, a ton of smaller ones. But it was like, you know, eye opening that you can, you know, this fish structure walk around the lake and you know and from that point on uh, no matter where i was or what i was doing it was just one of those things where you knew like you cover water and you would have you would contact more fish um so that was like the first lesson you know outside of sitting on the bank and casting your dough ball and catch carp you know from one spot um and then from there it kind of just got into you know the like i said the fly tying and stuff like that uh, and through that so club, how, did, how did that you know when did you when did you contact your first muskie in that time so uh, i never caught one bass fishing um and it's like you hear that all the time the guys you know catching on crappy fishing bass fishing or anything like that it wasn't until um i want to say i was in college met a guy that i was an intern at pendot with him had a place of pocket tuning uh, and we we were fishing the spillway pocket tuning uh, and caught one like that and then after that I went to Lake Arthur fished a spillway at Arthur and you know, it was kind of just you know once you knew uh, a place that was an easy place to contact them kind of seemed um, but before that I spent a lot of time like kind of um, I was in state college so I was doing a lot of the trout fishing stuff like that, but I would drive down to raised town and fish the raised town. Range we don't talk Virginia about Island. trout. We don't talk about trout on this podcast. They don't like to get me started, Evan. That sounds good. <laughs> All right. We'll have so, to bleep uh, that out. Don't. All don't. Right. Trout beep. That's, that's garbage. So we talk about no trout. There. Sorry, go ahead. Do you, do you down there and raised down and uh, never contacted one, but that would probably be the first place that I like seriously got after, you know, like trying to, to catch them. Yeah. Um, and, and never, you know, like I said, never contacted one, caught them out of the dam at Pine Tuning and then down there at, um, at Lake Arthur. So that, that was kind of my start. And then uh, the same guy there that, uh, that had a place at Pine Tuning and were fishing the spillway um, had a uh, a small boat we started to fish the lake and caught a couple fish out of the lake and then you know once that happened um I, I didn't i never had a boat my family never owned a boat or anything like that so it was all new um and i i didn't you know it was kind of about the time that the kayaks were just starting out and, um i mean i don't want to say just starting out but 
really like you saw people <laughs> like outfitting kayaks, I would say, you know, where you could get rod holders and things like that and kind of customize them. Um, and, and I really was intrigued by uh, Orvis had this inflatable pontoon boat that they had in their catalog. And I thought, man, that would really be sweet because I could take it in places I think that I could get like real shallow. And uh, one of the places that I wanted to try um, was up at Woodcock Lake um, because I'd fished up there with Howard Wagner one time. And um, so I got that pontoon boat and that's, you know, I had a um, what is Toyota Avalon, I think it was. And, uh, you know, I think so let's fit just, perfectly let, in. let me just stop you there and say, let, let's come back to that. You just said you fished with Howard Wagner there. We're going to cut, we're going to circle back at some point and talk about Howard Wagner and you fishing with him. So I just want to remind me to come back to that. So go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So that, that was a, um, Toyota Avalon that thing fit perfectly in the trunk of my car. And, um, you know, like angle the rods back from the, the passenger seat to the back and, um, baits and a couple of plano boxes in the back seat, and, and that was perfect because I would take it up there to Woodcock. It take me about twenty five minutes to inflate, and, um, and I just go on the north end of Woodcock up above the spillway there and fish from there up to the, up into the creek. And uh, I would say that's well, obviously, is probably where I caught my first one, like in a, a boat, I guess if you want to call it that. Um, but like right at my feet on a Joe Boucher slot master spinner bait, you know, like making the L and fish just slammed it. I mean, it was 32 inches or something like that, but it was pretty awesome for the first time. Splash of water all up on me. And, but from there, in, in fishing there, I spent a lot of time on French Creek uh, around Meadville and then further up um, and, and fishing out of that pontoon boat and caught a lot of fish out of there and pike. Um, Captain Reef Hogs. It was one of those things like, you know, you don't hear a lot about these baits anymore, but back in those days, it was awesome because we had Sportsman's Warehouse and, and um, off of Camp Horn Road up there. And um, just now, when, you say, when you say back in the day, are we talking like, are we, like, are we talking like 2012? We're we talking 2006. You know, yeah. when did you like really get started? Yeah, I'd say it was 2006. Uh, probably 2005, 2006. Um, it might have even been like 2004, but it was just like in the summers or something like that, where you know, it was like make a trip here and there. Um, but we had gone to Canada quite a bit too, probably about that same time. Um, Where'd you go I in was, Canada? We were going to Lodge Lodge, uh, and then we were fishing in Georgia Bay also, um, Pennsylvania Club, which is up off of in the Moon, Moon River area. Um, so yeah, we, you know, like I had been to those places and never really contacted a musk yet. Actually, I would have to say that's where, you know, my buddy Sean had had the place of pine tuning and hooked a giant up at, um, well, on the upper French there on the lunch lodge. And that was one of those things too, where it was kind of like, um, connecting the dots, you know, like where the last few years that we had gone up there previous to that, everybody was like kind of fishing the same areas, you know, you, you, you had a a camp boat you went as far as everybody else could go outside of you know would want to go you'd drive that boat for 30 minutes and then fish every bay on the way back and it was like you know we started thinking about it it's, well, let's make a longer run we'll pack lunches we'll go out there we won't come back until late um and we'll just go further and maybe we'll hit something that these people 
don't, you know, like can't spend as much time on her, you know, don't want to, and it paid off, you know, you hooked a giant fish, we ended up landing a smaller one, but it was, you know, from there, like, you know, you realized maybe we were on to something and, and I had some success doing it after that. So, so when did, yeah, like, in, cool. in terms of, you know, once you started musky fishing, you said you, you got started, you know, tying flies but what got you into building hard baits because i mean you're, you're making crankbaits and you know going from flying you know tying flies to making hard body wood baits that's a, a big that's a totally different two totally different things how'd you get into the other um it started out where i was kind of like i got into carving and i want to say it was like into like making um just kind of like a fish decoy and that was earlier and um you know from there kind of like working with wood and that kind of stuff i thought well you know like i could could make a crankbait and obviously you know there was some fish in the creeks and things like that um making something that was like a twitch bait was pretty effective so that was the first thing i made was a forage twitch bait and um spent a lot of time fishing that up in french creek and um you know i had probably caught I had my first three fish day on that bait, and um, you know, it was so that's one of a four inch, where, a, a four inch twitch. You said, yeah, four inch twitch bait it just looked like a um, kind of like a small grandma or something like that. You know, it was just a a minnow bait style, and um, and where did you, you know, go from there? there? Uh, what did I make first? Well, I, I made like something bigger. So it was beefed up. It looked exactly the same as that, but it was, you know, like the size of a eight inch grandma. Um, and I caught a couple pike on that cast and that when we were at Georgia Bay on the upper French. Um, and then I don't know. I started messing around making some smaller crankbaits and, and I uh, got into fishing some other places locally and, um, started, you know, really looking into the size of the bait that people were using and comparing it to what was in our lakes and things like that. And, and um, kind of learned about Leesville over in Ohio and that a lot of people used uh, Lee Sisson, um, the, the ticker version. And uh, it's just a tiny little bass crankbait. They're all uh, beefing it up with, you know, bigger split rings, bigger hooks. You got to, you know, put a thicker wire through, pin the lip, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, man, this is something that I feel like if somebody made a musky version of this bait, that, you know, there'd be some potential in, um, in it working. And I, about the same time, you know, like we talked about earlier, I guess this is kind of where it comes full circle. It fished with Howard Wagner some. Um, and, and, you know, kind of just talking with Howard Wagner, I met Rich Newman and fished with rich newman a little bit and um you know talking to rich rich thought that was a great idea so i you know made this small crankbait and it was actually the mini meatball is what today would be the mini meatball and um so, so okay was, so the mini so tell us what's the size of the mini meatball what size what's the size of the meatball so the mini is on there it's three it's like maybe three and a half inches to four inches i guess uh with the lip and then the regular size meatball is uh four and a quarter about five inches with the lip so 
It's just a smaller, it's just, it's a lot thinner body. It doesn't have as, you know, as fat of a body as a regular meatball has. And, um, you know, obviously doesn't, doesn't move the water like regular meatball does. It's kind of a lot more subtle. Um, but that, you know, that was one of those things where the one came before the other one and then kind of didn't come back around for a couple of years until I realized, man, that was, that was actually something that was pretty good. So what was the first year? Like what, what was your first production bait, so to speak? Like that you actually said, Hey, I'm going to put this out for guys to buy. I think it, it works. I know it works. I'm going to put it out there for, for people to purchase. Yeah. I have to say it was 2007. Uh, I started to make them and then started. And at first, I mean, this is one of those things like the progression of it was, it was wood. Um, you know, they were all wood, the smaller, the minis were all wood. Um, and then the regular meatball was all wood. And it was just, a, you know, it was time consuming and it was very difficult to get the same um, complex curves on the bodies every single time. And uh, it got to the point where I started to just fiddle around. I saw some other people messing with some different products and things like that. And, and about the time it just, um, you know, I was talking to a guy that was over in Indiana and was using some plastic on a lathe and kind of intrigued me how he was able to turn it. And it was similar density cedar, um, just kind of seemed like it was very, uh, durable. You didn't have, you know, and that, it was around the same time too, where, um, there wasn't, there was not this plethora of information out there online like there were no facebook groups for bait makers that were telling people like hey you know all you have to do is post and 30 seconds later there's eight people telling you exactly what you need to do and um and i refrain from doing that because i feel like even at this point like you have to figure it out on your own because a thousand people can tell you 850 different ways and and really to maximize your efficiency, you have to figure it out on your own. And, you know, you could test everything that people tell you and, and what works for you is what's going to work for you. And that's always what I've felt. So um, it's one of those things where um, you kind of cringe when I see people telling people what to do because it's like, man, there's, there's people have money tied up in all this stuff. And, you know, you spend $150 on something and, you know, figure out that it's right. not what you, you know, you can't figure it. That's the hard part. You know, if you can't figure it out and you're struggling to make it work, you know, I guess this day and age, you can just go online and ask people. So maybe it's not as bad as I perceive it to be, but. Well, so, so when you like the baits that you are, the baits that you will bring to Musky Max for sale, you like, those are not wooden baits. They're, they're all, are they all plastic baits? Yeah, they're all plastic okay. baits. They're all resin, you know, two-part mold board, um, you know, through wire, complete solid wire body through. Um, and this year I'm building baits that don't have rattles in them. So I'm pretty anxious to see what the difference is the results just because traditionally in the past i think pretty much every single meatball that i've made has a rattle in it so hey and so you you have a mold like did i mean without i don't want to get into your secrets or whatnot but i mean obviously you you do you have do you have a mold that you pour with it like a two-part you said it's a two-part resin mold 
There's a two-part mold. They're all silicone. Um, it just all depends on what you want to do with it. So, but yeah, I mean that's the most efficient way to do it. Go ahead, Ryan. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I just had I had a question. I don't know that I've ever really asked you this before. I've, uh, <clears throat> you know, looking at the profile of the meatball. You know, there's not a lot of musky baits out there that look like that. You know, to me, I've just that the way you built it, the way it thumps, you know, it, it reminds me more like a, like a larger bass style bait. And I, I was just kind of curious, like when you were looking at this to, to build the first meatball, you know, was that, what was the idea behind it? Like, how did you come up with that profile? I mean, if that's fair. And then how did you ultimately settle on the name meatball? So, yeah, I mean, that's essentially what it was just, um, you know, looking at the bass style crankbait, and that's kind of what I caught my first one on the fishing in this spillway. There was the Rapala um, DP6 or something like that, or Fat Wrap, I guess it was, um, the square lip, small square lip Fat Wrap. And um, just kind of basing it off of that, something that was castable, um, and then just kind of, you know, upsizing it. And then, like I said, I, I built the smaller one first, so it was kind of almost, um, I don't want to say it was identical, just because it was, you know, there were some slight variations in it, but um, once I built the bigger one, I mean, it once it was, it was, it's kind of weird. I don't know, like, you, you know, you couldn't just scale it. I didn't just scale it up. It kind of turned into, you know, like, four times the mass but the same you know same kind of length, you know short distance longer but really fatter so and then i was fishing with the guy we used to do uh, a thing up there by maintaining cold boys weekend where we all got together and you know there's probably 10 of us or something like that guys from all over western pa and uh, we had a, a trophy made and it was, it was pretty cool um and you know my buddy mike was out with me the one day and he's like man that thing just looks like a meatball and you know from there kind of just stuck it was you know the musky meatball sounded too good to to uh not use so yeah I, so how many other... models do you how many models do you currently make like what sizes <laughs> i mean what do you what do you what are you bringing I don't know, man. I just couldn't tell you right now because <laughs> I have so many different variations. I don't know if I'm gonna make them, if I'm, you know, what I'm gonna do. But I mean, I have the mini meatball, and then I have a shallow mini. Um, so there's two, and then there's the regular meatball, and then a shallow regular meatball. So there's four. Um, I make a bait called the smelt, which is like a a depth rater size bait. Um, it's like eight inches or so. Um, the uh, metal, um, I don't even know what you would call it, like a, a, a diamond-shaped lip. Yeah, stamp diamond-shaped lip. Um, and I started to make those out of um, like a suspending version for different um, different applications and different bodies of water. So it was kind of one of those things where I'm always kind of, you know, one of those bait makers that I feel like there's uh, uh, a lot of different things to, to try and um, you know, maybe one of those things will pay off or not. I don't. Well, are but, you using different so, plastics? 
like to change the buoyancy or are you just changing the weight in the plastic or i mean do you have different molds for each of these different sizes or i mean it seems like if you you know to experiment like this and to have molds for each one would be i think difficult <laughs> you know that would be labor intensive yeah i mean i think that's all part of the game right is just trying to you know you really enjoy doing something you spend your time doing it and invest your time and money into, into trying to uh come up with the best things that you can so yeah I mean, do you create all... you just create like you know different you so you'll just make a, if you think okay i i want you know to ch try this an, an eight inch bait whatever you'll just create a mold or you do a wooden bait first to test it and see how it runs and then say okay this is the bait I, this is the lip this is the angle everything i'm gonna make a mold of this yeah that's all i mean that's all how it works you have to prototype the thing first you gotta try it you know if it works you know then you go with it and spend the extra money on doing the rest of it and um you know i mean there's stuff that it works <laughs> make a mold of it and you know you find out it's a flop or it doesn't you know work the way you want it to or whatever and, and that's all part of it you know but then there's also the ones that knock it out of the park and i mean a lot of the time um and i guess it's all part of it that you know you watch a video of musky eating a chicken carcass you know you can catch them on just about anything so if you uh <laughs> you make something that runs and you know it's going to stay in the water what people need it to do i mean the rest of it is just inevitable right i mean not so are you like has. are you getting prepared for musky max or like what's your show like what's what's the plan for the show like are you are you pretty much like ready or are you not yet you know are you still yeah, making baits I'm, I'm still making baits i mean i have everything is made it just needs painted so i'm just in the process of getting everything painted and, and epoxy finished up that way um so yeah that's i figured if I start January, it gives me two months. That should give me enough time to get, you know, hopefully enough time for <laughs> for Muskie Max and the New York show, depending on how much I can uh, finish between uh, March and April. So, hey, how many like... baits do you plan on taking to Muskie Max? Um, all the ones so you make. Try to do, yeah, try to do some quick math. And so in the past, I've taken around between 100 and 140 meatballs, and I've sold out mostly on the first day of meatballs. I'm trying to do like double that if I could. Um, nice. So hopefully, I finish you know, enough to have some on the second day. Um, and then also, I, um, I have a bunch of other styles that I've made in the past. So besides, you know, the smelt that I talked about, there's um, a flat bait that I've made in the past that has a um, like a legend park bait style deep diving lip. Um, I have a bunch of them, and then uh, a smaller wood cedar flat bait that's the same size as the meatball. Um, that's called the meat pie, which I've had a lot of success with, and you know, made them in the past for the show. Um, have a batch of those ready that I'm going to be painting here too. Um, and then, um, what else do I have? Are you bringing any meatloafs? I do have a box of meatloafs I need to paint. Uh, they've been sitting there for probably a year or so. Yeah, I, we're going to. I agree with Donnie's sentiment. The boys are happy. That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Looking for that hillbilly clown one, Evan. I know, man. I'm still. <laughs> I haven't forgot you, Donnie. 
<laughs> I think so uh, I, have I have a question for you, Evan. So you yes, have, like, I mean, I see your baits go up on these auction groups and they don't stay up long. Like people like fight over them. And you've been doing this. I mean, you said since what, like 06, making like actually mm-hmm. making the baits and stuff. How did you build such like a cult following without like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube? Like, how did you manage to get all of these guys so in love with these baits? Like back in the day. Before you answer, Evan, when anywhere I travel and take a meatball with me, like people that I fish with for the first time ever are just like gravitated to it. They're like, Ooh, <laughs> pull it out. And they're like, just what is this? Yeah. And, and enthralled by it. Well, that's good to know, Nick. Thank you. I don't, on, on I that, don't know hold what's on. started. Real quick, ahead, Evan, here's a, here's a quick uh, point to that. I go to the uh, Muskie battle this year. I drive to Wisconsin to meet up with Jeff Contreras and, and Mike Conklin, the guy that I'm going to be fishing with. We pull into Mike Conklin's house, and he has a Shaw's Bait Company sticker on the back of his Dodge Ram. <laughs> Just like, holy smokes, you know, how do you know Evan? And he's like, oh, yeah, we've been fishing together. for. I've known him for 12 years or something, you know. It's like – that's it. It's like there's a cult following with right. them. Internet. It's like interesting to me how you made that happen before. I mean, like that didn't happen overnight in the last year. I don't think. I mean, there's been like a cult no. following for a while now. So how did that come about? I can't take credit for it either. That's the problem. Tom. I have to thank Brian Klein and those guys out there in Wisconsin, honestly, because that's one of those places where and and it's it's really cool to me. Um, I. Never, you know, I mean, I'm a Western Pennsylvania guy who's make baits around here. And I never expected that, but I guess it's one of those things that's inevitable if people in an area find something that works for them. Uh, it just really takes off. And I think the word of mouth and, you know, some some feedback from a couple people really paid off there where it's just kind of spread like wildfire. And Still to this day, I mean, I get, you know, more people from Wisconsin and around that Green Bay area contacting me for baits, honestly, than, than you know, Western yeah. Pennsylvania guys. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where I think, you know, just like all of us, I mean, you find something that works where you're at and, you know, you know what to use when you go where you go. So, yep. I mean, were you on forums back in the day pushing them hard or like what was your method to get them out there when you said, okay, I have a bait that I think people are going to want. What did you like take to, to get that out there? Yeah. So that was kind of one of those things. One of the first places that I had found to start talking to people about bait making was uh, Muskie first. That was just a discussion page that had a basement bait page, um, like a sub forum. And uh, so, I mean, that was, and that's one of those things too, that's really cool. Um, it's not a giant industry. So the people that were sharing information and talking back then um, were people that are, you know, and the other place was the, the dads and uh, musky tooth page. And uh, I mean, I really probably should have said that one first, honestly, because that was where, um, you know, I met a lot of people that kind of molded me into who I am and what I am today just because of, you know, know, talking to those guys. And, um, you know, at that time, and that was in that 2005, 2006, 2007 range. I mean, uh, the people that we were, you know, 
building baits going back and forth with each, with each other were um, you know, Johnny Dadson, uh, Sean Mayer from Hose Baits, Brett Cornier with Brett's Baits. Um, there was a guy. Um, heavy hitters. Yeah, Mark Rena, Josh Catchery were on there. Hans from Red October. Um, you know, Duff had posted some stuff on there from the beginnings back when he was starting to make the headlocks and stuff like that. I mean, it was really, um, you know, like some of the grounds of. Like you said, the heavy hitters, the people that are out there today that are, you know, <laughs> leaders in the industry catching some of the biggest fish. And, and that was one of the, you know, obviously it's just been an inspiration and I still stay in contact with a good number of those people. And, you know, always one of those things, like one of the things that was the coolest to me was one of my first orders of mini meatballs went to Duff and uh, he and his dad were fishing for walleye out on Red Lake. And I reached out and was like, man, I think these are going to kill out there. And, and it was one of those things. I mean, I thought that was the coolest thing, you know, I mean, and, and still to this day, you know, making baits for other bait makers is one of the, the most enjoyable things. And I mean, I'm sure a lot of the, a lot of the guys I've talked to Zach Baker, I've talked to a lot of, you know, different people and, and have gotten baits from them. And, you know, you always try to step your game up whenever you're making a bait for another guy that makes stuff for himself. You know I mean? It's, it's one of those things kind of challenges you and you know, intrigues you to do something different or definitely seems something. like it'd be a high compliment with how many guys are the of the like mentality of like only use what you make then if you're oh, making yeah. or using yeah. another guy's baits it's a pretty cool yeah i always thought that was really cool about andy too um andy and i did one of those first shows andy zomzik from fat AZ. he did one of the first shows um well I think it was his first show. It might not have been, but I know um, the Hammer Lures, um, Paul Feck. Um, I forget who else was there. I know uh, maybe Dale was there, Dale Wiley, and then um, guy from Moscow Lunch, Robin Erie. Um, oh, Dennis. Was also there. Yeah. He, and, is he, uh, he's not making baits anymore, is he? Not to interrupt you, but uh, that Moscow from, Lunch. It, he is. He's still he selling. Is. I still see him on eBay popping up here and there. Mm, interesting. Okay, carry on. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, no problem. <laughs> was that the? Uh, yeah. Was that like the Butler Butler show? That was before the Butler show. It was. It was at the. I want to call it Davis Hollow Marina at Lake Arthur. Um, there was a Muskie Inc. thing. It might not. No, I don't want to say it was before the Butler show. It was something that that the Muskie Zinc chapter put on, um, because before the Butler show, there was a show that was at Robert Morris. That was like a, it was big show. That was the first show that I had ever gone to, um, and Muskie Hunter was there, um, and you know, it was Raleigh and Helens was there. I mean, it was pretty interesting. Um, and about the same time, I had gone to some of the other shows. Like I've been to the Chicago Muskie Show, uh, been to Columbus, and did some of those shows. Um, so it was kind of cool. Like starting out, like you know, we actually bought plane tickets and flew to Chicago, <laughs> rented rented a car, and stayed overnight. You know, it was pretty sweet. It was like just a one night. You know, went to the got there, went to the show got on the plane the next day and flew home with all your musky gear so back in the day when you could do that kind of thing yeah but yeah it was uh that was pretty cool 
that's neat to me just because i mean now nowadays it's like you can post something and become like huge overnight like you make a lore and it goes viral and suddenly everybody knows about it you're selling hundreds of them and but like i mean back in 06 07 i mean that i mean it facebook might have been in its infancy then i don't really remember but i mean other than that like i was just curious how the heck you get guys all across the country buying your baits Push, pushing baits on MySpace. Yeah, I was gonna fair. say. Yeah, I was gonna say Tom was on MySpace back then. But yeah, <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. Picking my top eight and stuff. I think musky fishing is musky fishing is so small. You know, I think everywhere, even even in Wisconsin and Minnesota, like it's the musky fisherman community is so small that if you find if like if guys find something that works, hey, it's going to spread like wildfire. And I think that's that's really how you can create a, a you know, a, a business is is by getting into these guys, like you've said, like that, you know, these pioneering type of guys or, you know, a couple of guides, you get a couple of the good guides to to, to start putting your your bait in play and all of a sudden every one of their clients thinks, you know, your bait is magic. So, I mean, it's little stuff like that. And, and, you know, but I agree with Tom, that's really cool how back then, you know, it was not as easy as now, you know, you, you, where you can yeah. go on Instagram and, and take pretty pictures and, you know, post some, the nicest caption and you'll get a bunch of people like, you know, you gotta, it, you, your bait success is based on the fish that it catches. And that, that creates the word of mouth. That's kind of how I look at, look at things well and that's uh, all it has to be because if you're out there just making baits that are pretty i mean there's a lot of people that buy that stuff too but it doesn't necessarily always pan out so i think the other part of that too is when you have when you have a, a mixture of both you know those things like and that's what i see with you know the work that you do i mean i've always been a huge fan of your paint you know that i've i think i've told you that more than once but the way the way you even just paint even just a perch pattern i mean it stands out to me and there's just there's other things you do with like the glitter and you know putting that stuff guys want to some guys want to see that i mean some guys don't care they just want to fish the bait the fish we all know the fish probably don't care as much as we would like them to based on the paint that we're buying but you know that when you have both though like that's to me that's like that's the huge plus and that's that's what helps you get that cult following that, that following because you know some of the guys that are just painting pretty baits that don't run i mean it only takes like one experience to run a bait like that when you realize it doesn't work you know firewood. What, what's that firewood exactly <laughs> you know just pretty firewood so yeah i mean i think a combination of both there that's and i i'm, I'm glad that that tom used the term cult following because that's that was such like to me that's just so accurate though like it, I was gonna comment earlier on on the uh, the crockpot collective. Yeah, you have and like then, guys quoting the slogan and like like muskies love meatballs like it's 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 just wild to me. It's like like the believers yeah. like like you have these like diehard fans of these baits and people really like them like it's yeah. wild. It's like you, we need to get some we need to get some meatball t-shirts, some like meatball swag out there because that like I would buy that stuff up. And I know there's a lot of people out there that would too. So I'm still waiting for my pro staff sticker. <laughs> They're all right here in the home. See, I so 
so Evan, if you've done like in the past, you've done a Chicago show and stuff like that, or what shows are you doing this year? So I never, I never did the Chicago show. Unfortunately, I'd like to do that. I did send some baits out with TRO a couple of years ago. Um, just visited whenever we were out there and bought a bunch of stuff. Um, but I definitely, uh, this year I'm going to be doing the Muskie Max and then I'm going to do the New York show up in, uh, in Chautauqua there. Um, so hopefully that'll, that'll work out for me because it's the first year that I've done two shows. So, yeah. I'm excited so for that show. It. Looks like a little different lineup. And yeah. Different. Yeah, I'm excited to get outside of my home area and see what it's like to travel and do a show yeah. a little bit to see, you know. Well, I'll have a booth. Have I'll have a booth up there as well, and so hopefully a bunch of the guys will be coming up to. So we'll hopefully we'll have a, a group of us up there for the weekend. We'll be able to make yeah, Hangover Part Four. Yeah. Where's Evan? <laughs> yeah. He's sold out, but you can just like pass out on a roof somewhere. It wouldn't matter if you're sold out the first day. <laughs> Passed out with a stack of cash up on the roof. Yeah. Yeah. I might have to make a point to go get my Reuben and Tots finally, since I won't be fishing. I think I can make that happen. This I'm week. telling you. <laughs> you know what sucks is I think they closed down over the winter. Oh, jeez. Yeah. You're gonna have to go beef on whack, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what's the What's the pizza joint that Charlie talks about? Then I have to get the pizza. Isn't that at the casino? Is that no. the casino too? I thought that was somewhere else. The tots, tots and rubies. Yeah, pizza somewhere else. There's lots of places to find eat up there, and if it falls, fails, you go to Hogan's and get a hoagie, get some cheese curds. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So where do we want to go from here, boys? Uh, Do we we want to start going into Evan's uh, musky historical knowledge, or Nick, do you want to take over for a minute and ask whatever questions you have? I was going to ask one other question for Evan. Since you mentioned Mr. Dadson, do you have any of the crazy Canadian baits like the Wishmasters or anything like that? I don't. Anything I exotic? never, uh, yeah, I never invested that in anything like before. that. But yeah, I, um, they all, I mean, that's one of those things that they were available and I probably should have, you know, there were, there were some out there that I probably could have got my hands on if I really, um, but that's a true. True cult following there. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not really a big collector, to be honest with you. I mean, I do have some baits that I've set aside that you know were uh, Ladianos, um, you know, some early like Leos, couple early Wileys, and things like that. But just because they're kind of Western PA things, and not you know, I don't know. I never really got into the big Wishmaster following. Um, That's what... And I know a lot of you know. A lot of, a lot of his success, role success, was because of his his dating and numbering system. You know, I mean, they were definitely unique, but they were documented too. You yeah. know, they came. Didn't each with, one come with, with a certificate? Yeah, it came with the paperwork and everything like that. And I think that's really what set them aside was because, you know, they had a, a different type of. Um, authenticity to them i guess and kind of made them a little bit more collectible than, than anything else i was after i guess uh, so yeah, that's just kind of the reason why i never got yeah. into it i mean obviously they're great baits and you know respect everything that rolf did just because he 
he was way ahead of his time with his designs and you know, his paints and everything like that. But I always really like the the tickler blades he put on the the tail hooks there. Yeah, kind of like, like ice. Yeah. So I have one more, and it's kind of like a real basic one. Um, so what what came first for you? Because me, like personally, I've thought so many times about making baits. Like I'm like, oh, I want to make a bait. And then I remember like my wood shop experience ends like in high school making like a cutting board. Yeah, and I like I like can't even <laughs> use scissors without cutting my fingers off. So like were you kind of a woodworker before all this happened, or did you start the woodworking because you were interested in making musky lures? Yeah, I I never really had any experience with any of the woodworking stuff before that and you know kind of just got into it um through and there was a lot of stuff that's kind of cool. I mean there's there's places out now that you can buy blanks, you know, like you can get blanks off of people. And that was one of those things like on Musky First back in the day. Like there were some bait makers that would sell blanks and things like that. Um and then kind of got into um there's a couple like saltwater bait bait shops tackle shops that sell some blanks so there was like some um like some like pikey styles and the surf stir top water popper kind of thing spook style baits that you could uh, get blanks for and just finish so it was just you know um so you kind of graduated you know, from painting blanks to building your own blanks and yeah things where yeah you saw what was uh, successful out there, so you tested, and once you you found out, you know, like you figured out the basic hydrodynamics of what you needed to do to make a bait run, uh, and then it just kind of branched off into you know, see what you could make that was different than other things. Nice. All right, I got one question for Evan too before we move on from uh, the, the Evan Shaw's history. It's a, it's a two-part question. I think I do know the answer to the first part, but uh, just in case. One, what is the biggest musky, biggest fish that you've caught on a Shaw's bait, and what bait was it? And then two, what's the biggest musky that you know of caught on a Shaw's bait? All right. That's a good question. So, first one, the biggest one that I've caught was my is my personal best, the fifty one and a half inch Tawa, and that was on a minor, which is like the a, a nine inch bait that I make deep diver. Um, fifty one and uh, a half. Fifty one and a half. Yeah, during the Chautauqua tournament in two thousand eighteen, I want to say it was maybe, um, maybe nineteen. I don't remember. Um, I, was gonna, I think but, that uh, that was what brought me to your booth, my first Muskie Max. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Talk about yeah, that was one of those bait. things where, yeah, out in the middle of nowhere too, out in you know thirty-seven foot of water. I think the bait was like seven foot down and just kind of driving across the lake, um, seven o'clock in the morning on the second day of the tournament. After we, you know, kind of stunk it up the first day and the rod went off and I'm thinking, oh, it's either an anchor rope or a fish, so hopefully it's the second. <laughs> and, uh, so it was, it was nice. Paid off. All of mine um, were one of those one. two. It ends up being an anchor oh, yeah. rope. <laughs> yeah. It's because the places you fish are loaded with anchor ropes, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the second one was, uh, I want to say it was uh, one that Micah caught out there in 
and it was Wisconsin. It was a 52-incher, but it was like 24-and-a-half-inch earth. It was just a super fat fish in the summertime, too. It was like in mid-July, um, just on a like a walleye color meatball. Um, it was pretty awesome. Mike Getting Conklin? Lake in Wisconsin. No, uh, Micah, Drew, um, oh. Micah Yost, guy that I went to Minnesota with out there. Um, yeah, and that would, nice. that would have to be the biggest. There's been a couple 50s out of Green Bay that I've heard of. Um, and then mostly Brian Klein was involved with them. So that's always, you know, good to hear. But, <laughs> I have a question yeah, about that. Yeah. Now, these yeah. Wisconsin fish, are we talking minors? Are we talking meatballs? What were they? Do you know what they were caught on? Yeah, they're all mostly meatball fish. I mean, they're, I, I don't, you know, there's not a whole lot of minors out out there besides mostly guys locally i would say um and, and a lot of that's just because i don't i haven't made a ton of them you know, mm-hmm. probably make 12 or 14 of them for a show if i do that and i think i may have done that for three years or so um and besides that i mean i honestly don't think there's a ton of them out there um but there should be. So yeah, I have a. So I, have have, I got one more question, and this is based based around show season, <clears throat> and I think it's more or less because I know how sought after your your lures can be, and guys, you know, wanting to get them. So, do you have any type of plan, you know, in place for the booth? Like, are you going to do like like a two bait limit, like you maybe in the past, or have you thought about that at all? Yeah. I'm considering it again. I mean, I think that's one of those things. I try to keep the price fair. Um, and the reason why I put a two-bait limit on it is because of that. So I don't, you know, I mean, I have, you know, I've seen in years past where it turns around and, you know, the next day there's some on eBay. You, know, people you just got to ban Ryan from your booth then. <laughs> <laughs> I can honestly what say. Put a picture would... of him up, not welcome at the the meatball this business. guy can't he's a known <laughs> offender <laughs> now if i would have put your baits on ebay i would expect that but i so i i've i found that i've really for, well first of all I, I enjoy running meatballs and i hope someday that i can send you a picture you know of a 50 inch fish on one because i think that would be that would be awesome you know i would i would love to be able yeah. to get a fish of that caliber on a bait made here you know, especially, you know, someone like you, but it just, you know, I don't, I don't, I haven't sold a lot of baits that I've bought that were made in PA. Cause I have like this emotional attachment to baits that are made here, you know, like doesn't matter what it is. is like a I, lot actually surprisingly. And, and the funny thing is like, and Ev, you'll never like admit to this, but I honestly think you're one of the best bait makers in our area. And there's a, there's so many good bait, like, and, and some of these guys are legendary that, you know, you would have to spend 30, 40 years of doing this to, you know, like the Brian Boyers of the world and the, you know, the Dale Wileys. But I, I think from that standpoint, I mean, you, you are and should be considered, you know, one of the best bait makers because of the product line and, and the way you handle people. And, you know, I just, man, I'd love to see about four or 500 meatballs in that booth for Muskie Max. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. That's definitely, uh, it, it makes me feel good hearing that from you. And, and one of those things where, you know, I appreciate you fishing them and taking the time to talk about them on the podcast and stuff like that, like in the past. And 
it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, I, it really helps having that those people around you. You know, I mean, it gives you something to aspire to. It's one of those things where I've always thought that, you know, coming from this area and having that inspiration of you know, knowing that these guys are making baits that are being sold all across the country. Like, you know, you, you get the Raleigh and Helens catalog and you see a lot of stuff that's in there that, you know, but then when you recognize something, man, that's, that's crazy. I, you know, I know that guy or I've, you know, <laughs> talked to him in the past or, and I always thought that that was one of those things, you know, it's, and especially even like, you know, the whole Jerry Mateer story and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's like talking to a guy that's like, you don't, there's not, you post about Mateers online and there are people that reply back that know about it. You know, like there's like four people, five people, and those people are the, like, you know, it's, it's not this giant population out there. And that's one of those things, like, I feel like it's almost a disservice because Jerry's made the, some of the most, you know, amazing baits, caught some giant fish, and, you know, fishing in places where, you know, they it's just killer baits, you know. I mean, it's one of those things where they're, they're catching giant fish. And, um, you know, I feel like it just needs to be talked about more times than for that those people to be recognized because there's a lot of people in western pa that just didn't get the limelight like others did and it's not because they didn't get it it's because they didn't want it you know it's one of those things where it's, you, know, you, you didn't want to make a business where you was having you know selling at shows and things like that so it's just kind of kind of cool to hear the stories now are are you still uh doing some work with him i am yeah i mean i I have a bunch of baits here that I need to finish up too for him. Um, and he and I have been talking over the winter about, you know, what we're going to do here in the future. And so I'm anxious to, you know, get some stuff back to him and see what happens here. So yeah, it's, that's another one with the, the cult following that oh, yeah. you've run in, I've run into people far and wide that have asked me about uh, his jerk baits in particular. Yeah. I'm sorry. Who? Just to clarify, who? Who exactly are we talking about here? Jerry Mintier. Okay. Okay. Do uh, it, I? I am curious about this. It, it, like, how at this point, like, say you wanted to buy like a Mintier bait, like, how do you? Is it even possible at this point? He's not making them, or, or is this going to be like a, you know, some maybe someday contact Evan Shaw's type deal yeah i think there's some potential in that yeah there's there's um you know like right now obviously jerry hasn't been making anything i think in like the last eight years or so um and that was kind of why i reached out to him whenever i did had the opportunity to um just because i've known him for a while now and um i've been to his house before and you know got some baits off him in the past but um you know it expressed my interest in the pikey minnow and um, the success that I've had with it in the past and um, just the opportunity to learn how he's made the baits and um, you know, try to um, mimic if possible. That's pretty cool, don't it? Brad Key. Mm-hmm. <laughs> try to mimic what he's... I, was, uh, I thought I had a pikey up here somewhere, but I don't. It's outside. Yeah, it's, uh, worked with him last year a little bit and um you know got some baits off them and, and finished them up and he was impressed with how they turned out and, um so i'm hoping to be able to do the same thing here that's, that's very so cool to, uh, to see the see his you know baits 
continue on instead of being a, you know, rare and kind of unobtainium. Yeah, that was one of those things, too, where, like, the history in this area is kind of what's intrigued me to do it, just because there's been some other bait makers that have, you know, when when uh, talking to Jerry and hearing some of the stories about Ed Latiano and, um, you know, one of Ed's concerns was that nobody was going to make the vamp. He made the, the head and vamp style bait and that there were um, that there weren't anybody, you know, there was nobody out there that was going to make the vamp. And um, it was a concern of his just because he spent a lot of time making them and kind of perfecting it and, and things like that. And, and um, there actually was a gentleman, his name was Jim Menser, who is from the Elwood area also, who had uh, started to make that vamp. And, and over the years, it, you know, like, like Jim had, um, perfected it to the point where you know it was almost a, a better version than one hadn't it put together and um and i honestly think that, that jim Menser had passed away also or or hasn't you know obviously is to the point where he hasn't been making baits either so uh you know it's one of those things where you know unfortunately you see that come and go where you know there's a particular style that you really like or you know whatever it might be disappear and you just can't get it anymore unless you, you know, have a main or something like that. So, right, and that's I think that's something that's important to you know to note about these baits are they are so individualistic in the sense that if that person dies, so to speak, that bait goes away. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. it is it's proprietary to that person. Yeah. Maybe someone helps them out. Maybe someone helps them to do it. But for the most part, all these guys are in their basements or in their shops making these baits themselves. And they, uh, they're, they have their fingerprints all over them. You know, they are, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, you know, uh, built into these baits and you can't just, you know, replace that with, you know, Oh, someone else pick up that design and build it. I mean, yeah, it can be kind of similar and, you know, maybe Someone might even improve on it, but that's their bait. It's not, you know, a Wiley or a Leo or, you know, something like that. So I I don't know. I think it's really important. And I think I'm really impressed at how, how people locally have kept local bait makers in business and and by supporting them. And, and that has carried into, you know, Canadian followings and, and Wisconsin followings and Minnesota followings and things like that. I think that stuff's just awesome. I will say what is not awesome is the amount of money one could spend <laughs> on on lures that you feel might not be available at some point. <laughs> and what I mean by that is in particular, you know, I, I find myself the last two years really, <clears throat> you know, loading up on the Wileys and, and things like that because you just never know when somebody like Dale is going to call it. And, and I think, I think Vance had a good point at some point where when we were talking, it was like, or he was talking, I can't remember what conversation this was, but like, you know, the fact is nobody really wants to buy a Wiley from somebody that's not Dale. You know what I mean? Like, like I wouldn't want to buy a meatball from anybody, but Evan and, and some of the, like the Mintier stuff, like I find that interesting because, you know, Evan with you having the ability to be able to like reproduce that with Jerry, you know, essentially, you know, being mentored by Jerry on that bait, like to me, that gives it a lot more meaning. Like that bait can continue on and be made and, and kind of be revitalized. But like, 
you know, I don't, I don't know that I feel the same way about like, like Dale's line. You know what I mean? Like I want to buy a Wiley from Dale. <laughs> well, so let's look of, at the hooker bait. I mean, the, yeah. the, the famous hooker bait, I guess was purchased by, was it the blue water baits guys? They were making the hooker bait. And then recently Nick, Ick, the hooker bait, the, yeah. that design got purchased by the trophic five guy um, who has been, yeah, I mean, and so you, it's essentially just you're buying someone else's design and then you're painting it. And does it carry the same cachet, so to speak? You know, like the same the, – the, the, I, I agree with Ryan where I, if I'm buying a Wiley, I'd kind of prefer it to be a Wiley, you know, like that, that was built by Dale Wiley as opposed to, you know, some guy that bought Dale Wiley's – design and decided to try to make as much money off of that design as possible now because no. there's there's the capitalism aspect to it too yeah i was I gonna, think I, I was gonna oh, say about the, no i was just gonna say you know donnie would disagree with the china wileys but <laughs> you know there there is another aspect though like if you knew the person like if you knew that this individual was like a local bait maker and Dale like handed the business off and was mentoring and going through that then i might feel a little different about it but you know, it's just, it's tough. Like the trophic guy, like that situation, I don't know. I don't know any of those people. So it's a little bit like farther from home. And it, like, I wouldn't want to buy a hooker because I really, I don't, you know, it's not something I'm comfortable with based on where it's built. Like, I don't know the history of it. Like, I just feel like I'm morphing into this like localized fisherman that just wants to fish like local PA baits because of all the history and the stuff that we were, you know, we we're going to talk about tonight. That's one thing uh, I think I might be way off base on this, but was that kind of how like Ladiano and Leo were slightly connected? I believe so. Yeah. I believe that, uh, that Todd learned how to make jerk baits from Ed, I believe. I mean, I think that's, and I, I you know, from I was my pretty sure I had that, heard. Yeah. That um, Rich Newman learned how to make jerk baits from Jerry interior so and that's why you saw the surprise style cut jerk bait that, that uh, rich newman had made in the past because that was the style that jerry had made as well as the regular dive and rise style uh, regular cut through um yeah it's one of those things i, I you mentioned that owen with the, those guys and that was hooker was originally a bait that was made over in ohio um so it's kind of interesting how it, it moved um and then this same kind of thing where I don't know if you guys saw it recently, but um, alley cat lords were purchased by Lungeon, and Lungeon had just recently posted that the alley cat lords were now going to be made out of mahogany and not PVC like they had previously been made out of. And um, and I mean I think that's exactly like what you're talking about. I mean they, you have the same name, um, you're making the same bait, the same shape, but out of a completely different material. Um, and now I don't, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of crankbaits out there that are made out of mahogany and guys are going to buy an alley cat and expect it to be like the PVC ones they bought. And I don't know how they're going to run. I don't know if Lungeon knows how they're going to run. That's just how it works, I guess. I mean, that's what it is when you buy a company, I guess. You can Trial and error, more. I guess, to start yeah, everything. I mean, that's, that's how you got to roll if you're, you know, I mean, obviously those guys have been making baits for a long time and have had success doing it. So I wouldn't think that they would invest money into doing something different and have it not pan out, but it's just the way, you know. I will say I got the 
got to ride along with someone running the new hooker baits and they do look pretty good. So that sounds good. So I have a, I have one more question here, but this is kind of try to get us into some history stuff. Um, if you guys are good with that, I am, I've been like, I've been sitting here cause I've never asked Evan, I've never asked you any of these questions and I don't know even how I've never asked you this, but you at the beginning, beginning of this, you had mentioned about fishing with Howard, Howard Wagner. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard you talk about Howard and some of the stuff we've done before, but I don't, what, I don't ever remember asking, like, what was it like? Like how, how did you feel like starting off and then being able to fish, you know, with somebody like Howard? I mean, Howard now was probably not the Howard then. Like there's a big difference, like over time, obviously, like, you know, we've talked about how everybody knows Howard Wagner and the history between, you know, with some of the fish and things he's caught, but like, you know, 10, 15, 20, whenever, however many years ago it was when you fished with him, like, you know, that's a, that's a little bit of a gap from, you know, today. So what was it like for you to like go fish with Howard at that time? And, you know, how did you kind of start with that? Yeah. So that was one of those things that's kind of weird at this point because Howard really isn't musky fishing anymore. So you don't hear any stories or anything like you used to, but at that time um, he was running the fish education center, which I know Donnie's been to before. And uh, been to that shop that he used to have up there in, in uh, Fawn Bell, PA. Um, and at that time, I mean, when he was musky fishing and guiding, he was taking people out. He wasn't, well, he, you know, he was taking people out fishing. Um, he was, you know, there were some articles in the paper and things like that. So you, you heard about him all the time, you know. I mean, if there was a fishing report, I kind of saw it. Uh, the writer there for a while with the post gazette and um you know there's a musky reporter there'd be an article or something like that and it was you know it's about howard it was about musky wagner or was about you know howard wagner um in, a, in that time frame too there were some articles about like lore making and elwood so it was kind of like gave gave you the history on you know like what was um you know how some of those other guys had started with uh Razo and some of the baits he was making and Wiley and Leo. Um, so it was kind of, you know, like there was more discussion about it, I think, in the newspaper. It, and I mean, obviously at that time, the newspaper had an outdoor section, which was in the paper. And, you know, there was every weekend, there was a, you know, Sunday, I think it was, there was a um, article about fishing, you know, in the state or in Western Pennsylvania. So, um, and that was just a little Pittsburgh post that. So, um, and that's kind of how I, you know, learned about Howard Wagner. And my dad also worked for PennDOT. So he did some work up around Zelenopol and in those areas. Um, so driven by the store before. And, um, that was kind of just one of those things where I'd, you know, I was kind of like in that, I think it was in, in college and, or just before I started college and, and asked to just, you know, like for my birthday, if I could go out with Howard, you know, I think my mom contacted him and set it up and that's just kind of how we linked up and, and ended up doing it. And then from there, it just stayed in touch with them because uh, it was just, we had fished together a couple of times and after that and, and um, 
you know, was I was young and interested in learning about muskies, and he was definitely the number one source whenever you looked anywhere. You know, that was the place to go. And like you said, it, there was nothing you you could Google some stuff online. You could you know post in maybe one message board somewhere, whether it was Red Childress's Allegheny River Guide Service up there, um, or you know Muskie First, something like that. Uh, maybe um, you, know, you get some information that way, but it just seemed like that was the, the easiest way was to reach out to the guy that you always heard about knowing the most about it. So um, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, going to uh, Moraine Muskie Association meetings. It was a group that Howard had uh, started up there and at, uh, the church met at the church up at Moraine. And then, and then through there, I met, you know, like Joel Morrow and some of those other guys. And, um, you know, just through that and the lore making and things like that, just, you know, kind of expanded into musky fishing and, you know, doing more, more places, going to different places. So is that kind of what got you interested in, in, I guess, looking into the history of, of some of Pennsylvania musky fishing was fishing with a guy like that, or just, are you just interested regardless? I think it was just kind of all encompassing, you know, it was one of those things where it was around the same time Pennsylvania was starting the musky management plan. So I think that was back in 2007 when the original musky management plan was written and they, they had started to have the meetings and, uh, I think I had a Western Pennsylvania meeting that was in North Park that I had went to. Um, and then there was other people from around Western PA that had been doing this for a lot longer than me. I mean, um, like Adam Andreski was one of the original people that was in the work group that, that met with the Fish and Boat Commission back in the day and um, really formatted the idea to up the size limit from 30 inches to 40 inches to um, you know, make it open year round so you had a better opportunity just because it's, you know, the majority of the places aren't supporting that natural reproduction to the level that they're going to create a fishery. You know, so you need the stock in these places to, to maintain a, a population of fish that are vegetable. And uh, I mean, it's that was what I mentioned, I think it was 2005 when they had that first meeting. Um, and here we are in 2022. And, uh, Things are just starting to come to fruition with everything that's been going on with the muskies and, and the uh, fish boat mission. Or, you know, we're starting to see a lot better populations in some of these lakes, and, you know, a lot better reports of fish caught and things like that, it seems. So it looks like progress has been made from you know, those early days where we had, a, I think it was like a, I don't know, two fish, 30 inch, two fish per day, 30 inch limit. Yeah. Something like that, or 36 inch limit. You can still get your two 30 inches of pie me. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah I mean, stuff. I think the history part kind of was one of those things where, you know, like with, um, I want to say it kind of started with Bill Crane, honestly. You know, like when I, I went to um, the Butler show back whenever it was at the high school, and I one of the first baits I bought off of uh people were was a crane bait and you know talked to bill and sharon at the show and um you know i heard great people really friendly talkative people you could you know just kind of talking about river musky fishing and things like that and um 
And that bait that spring, I caught a nice maybe 45-inch up of pine tuning on it and uh, sent them a picture of it and everything like that. And I think, you know, it was like everything whenever you buy a musky bait, like you, know, you catch your first nice fish on it, you, you buy seven more of them. And I think I still have five of them in the package here. <laughs> that was like, I don't know, 15 years ago, 17 years ago. It's like, yeah, they're uh, – I didn't need seven of them, but, uh, you know, and, and just talking to Bill and sharing about, like, kind of the history of West Virginia and then the, like, looking into the Muskie Compendium with Larry Rimzel and all that kind of stuff, you know, like, the, um, being on Muskie Tooth um, and talking about the history of the Georgia Bay Muskies, the kind of Brian fish, um, some of those other fish that have been out of Georgia Bay that are, you know, the barefoot fish, you know, like, some of these fish are just... You know, and there's a group of guys online that, you know, it's the same way. Like, there, there's historians, there's a lot of musky guys that know about these fish. I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, um, you know, back with musky tooth, during that time, the Ken O'Brien fish, um, there was muskies Canada tournament going on in the same place. And, and Sean the Ken O'Brien fish, was that 1981? There. Uh, I honestly don't. I, I, I will say yes Somewhere just because there. it sounds about right. Yeah. Somewhere around there, and that was the Moon yeah. River Basin in Georgian Bay. Yeah. Now, was that close to, where, close to where you guys were going Camp Pennsylvania? Um, it's in the same basin, yeah. I mean, it's in one of those areas where you, you, have, you, you can get there from there. Uh, it's a long, windy ride. Um, so uh, Perry, greater Perry Sound area. Yeah. Um, but that's just, you know, I mean, that's one of those places that's really intriguing too because the history of those fish and the size of those fish and, you know, over the years how you know, the body's changed and it's you know, people have adapted and have still caught them. You know, there's some uncharted waters and some really interesting terrain and, you know, it's, it's just amazing. It's one of those yeah. places you need to go and if you haven't been there you, you need to you know you need to that's check a, it out that's a whole nother talk with the the fish have been consistent before and after the alewives kind of crashed in the area and yeah just a dynamic oh yeah right. yeah i mean and that's one of those things of food chain the how how everything balances out after things change i mean that's one of those you know Talking to the Red October guys and how they designed the Red October tubes for the Gobies in Niagara. I mean, it's just one of those things where it's like the, the whole food chain thing, like you're talking about, like figuring out that missing link and knowing what to, you know. And I think that's one of those things that for years has puzzled me with Lake Arthur because talking to the fishing boat here, you know, it's their, their ideas were always like, well, you just got to do something different. The fish are still there. You just got to change and adapt and do something different. And that was one yeah. of those things where I always thought the meatball was going to be, you know, a great bait because I felt like musky guys were fishing giant baits. And, you know, it was one of those things where if you downsized and you talked to a lot of the bass crowd around, like, you know, they were, they were hulking muskies, you know, there was a reason why they were catching fish and it was because they weren't using these giant baits like everybody else, you know, that was specifically targeting them was trying to use, but, I mean, that was years ago, too, whenever you know, there were people that were believing that, um, you know, they were killing all the muskies in Lake Arthur with herbicides and things like that, too. So, I, I can't help but to think, 
you know, where have all the all wives gone? <laughs> it's all oh, mysteries. Lord. Yeah. We'll oh. have to dive into that another day. Yeah. We'll <laughs> to... <laughs> I'll skip that for now. I uh, I do feel like so I, I Evan, I know you love this like the history of and I think it's just such a cool thing to talk about for us too, because you know, you think back about all of these like historic things. Like I was reading that article that's in the post gazette kind of looking at it earlier and reading some of the quotes from like dale wiley and and todd leoparty and it's just you know some of this stuff is like <clears throat> i just feel like it's musky gold you know it's like you you, lo- you look at these quotes and you know but my, my question for you is looking i feel like sometimes if you can understand history like in the past where where we've come from, you might be able to get like a better grasp on the future. Do you feel like, like doing the research, um, would you say maybe for somebody like getting into the sport or trying to catch a muskie, their first muskie, like, do you, do you feel like doing that research and understanding, you know, where we've come, you think that helps or translates into, you know, maybe I don't want to say being a better fisherman, but do you think it, do you think it helps understand like, where we're kind of going or where things are going or understand how or where we're at as far as the, the fishery goes. Like, do you, is that something like you, you recommend to people to try to understand that? Or do you, is it just one of those things that you, you enjoy, you know, just understanding the history of, of the musky world and, and say Western PA. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things that it's, it's always changing. So it's one of those things that you kind of have to, you really need to look, know about the past to be able to respect what's happening now, I feel like. Um, but one of those things that it is, like, there were times in the past where the fishing was really good, you know, and that's to to think that, man, you know, we're, we're going to be changing things here by stocking bigger fish, and we're going to have a great future, um, that we, we had a really good past at times, too. Um, so I feel like understanding, you know, like in doing that kind of research, like looking into, um, you know, and in, in, in my personal opinion, I mean, that's what I, I did whenever I first started, just like finding the bodies of water that had been stocked the most or, you know, finding the, um, the highest percentage chance that I would have to catch one of these fish was the way that I had approached it. And I don't know if that's the way that everybody should approach it because, I mean, I feel like, you know, it all depends on what you want to get out of it. I feel like in today's day and age, the Fishing Boat Commission have made that easy for you because it's like they're doing this best, what is it, the best chance waters or something like yeah. that, where it's like, you know, you know, you have a great chance to catch a muskie if you go to one of these three people on the list. And um, so... I mean, it's, I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, if you don't, you don't want to like go to a place, just catch one muskie, then I don't know, man. You're cracking me up. That's what, those those articles in the Post-Gazette though are just phenomenal reads, especially like that was kind of my first winter of like, after I kind of started to figure out what I was doing. It was just, you know, what an amazing way to kill the time until, you know, summertime. When I thought you could only catch muskies in the summertime. Yeah. 
was a good way to to kill time in the winter and read about only it. when the water's over eighty. That's right. Yeah. Oof. That's right. Exploits and kill time in the winter and kill muskies <laughs> in the summer. Right? That's, right. <laughs> that's a like, uh, I think that's one of those things like. Howard never like gave us information like go do this here and you'll catch muskies. So I think that was one of those things that was always intriguing to me because it was never like figure out what he was doing, you know? Like it was never like written down somewhere like this is what you need to do. And the stuff that he was doing was out of the box. It wasn't like you were gonna, you know, like you saw him doing something, you're like, Oh, there it is. Like I gotta go eight miles an hour up the side of the river whenever it's thirty four degrees. Like it's just one of the things that I'm like it was just weird. Um, but you saw the success he had. So, I mean, obviously the things that he was doing worked for him. So you kind of needed to take that with a grain of salt. And that's one of those things that I learned over time. Like, especially like I just said with bait making an hour ago, um, where it's like, you just got to do it on your own. You know, I mean, you got to try it and figure out what works for you. And, and I felt like that was one of those things, like, it's just it's like my motto with musky fishing, right? Do what works for you. Um, because, like, it's so difficult to hear from somebody else, like, what they're doing and go out and try to do the same thing and, and duplicate the success. I mean, it's like it's like you heard, okay, Donnie caught a 47-incher on the north end of Pima Tuning, so you're going to specifically go there because of that. I know it's a lie. Try to Donnie catch that fish. <laughs> and it's just, like, one of those things, like, you know, these guys are so sensitive about this stuff, but like to have somebody go and do the same thing now, like, I mean, I understand like spots are tough. Like I'm not going to tell somebody my spots, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, and if you see a guy at a spot, you can almost guarantee he's doing something like, like that. Like, you know, driving eight miles an hour to think, holy shit, maybe that's how he's having success. Right. But I mean, I think that's one of those things where, you know, figuring out on your own is 97% of the puzzle, you know, and I think that's been what I've learned over time. Um, in all the guide trips that I've gone on to tell you the honest truth, like I've really struggled. I mean, I spent a lot of money and learned a lot, but haven't caught a lot. And the things that it's taught me is that the things that I've learned and that I've been taught are just to go out and do it the way that is, you know, to, these are the pieces of the puzzle, put them together in your head and you'll figure it out. And, and that's really paid off. I mean, and I've done that and that's really helped. So, um, you know, I guess it's one of those things where, you know, it's, it, it's pretty easy to see the success whenever you catch a big fish, um, uh, with a guide and it's enjoyable. Um, but I really feel like it's more enjoyable whenever you can figure out how to do it on your own from those pieces. Like, you know, it's just the same thing. If you, you read something online about, all right, you know, uh, the water temperatures hit this, you know, and, and give it a shot and you go out and you try it and it actually works or, or you try it five times, it doesn't work. And the sixth time it pays off. And it's like, you know, putting in that time really shows you and it makes you pay attention to the details that make you a better fisherman. I think, one I think of, that's just one of those things, you know, over the years, it's really, it really shows. I think the other thing too, is that, uh, you know, like, like what you're saying about putting in the work and, and doing it for yourself, do what works for you, <clears throat> you know, like building your record, your records over time 
and trying to like, maybe not remember, but document what you, where you've, you know, where you've been, where you fish, where you've caught fish, things that have worked. You know, these are all things that everybody's laughing at me because I've had like my beers the night. I can't even get questions on at this point. You look like Jimmy Neutron with your hair sticking up like that. I've been laughing the whole time. (laughs) I can't. I've took been my, on here for an hour, Ryan. Were you doing a power hour over there? No, what? I'm. I'm just. I'm getting ready. You know, I gotta. It's been a long day. I uh, he's racing himself. No, but he's like going to Pantan. What? Yeah, exactly. Where? What I'm getting at is like the fact that if you keep those records and you can figure it out for yourself, you can essentially make your own history. Like that's looking back in time at your records and your successes that makes you a better fisherman moving forward and set you up for the future. So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at is like, I agree with that. And I think I've learned that more over the last couple of years and really like even recommend, you know, recommendations from you, Evan, like on trying certain things, like my style of fishing being successful and what I feel comfortable doing. Like, I just, I feel like that's such a huge deal for guys that are getting into the sport and just trying to really catch their first fish, like go back to what you do best and, and, and really try to track that information, understand what you're doing, understand. And then really that history or that set of information is going to set you up for the future. So I, I think that's really interesting. I do like that point. And I think that's one of those things. I mean, I, I've talked about this in the past, I think on a podcast, but that's what all the guys are doing. I mean, it's one of those things like muskies aren't, they're, they're, with the brain the size of a pea they do what they do because of water temperature and bait fish and you hear that non-stop from people and people still overthink it every single day and it's one of those things where if you could put those two pieces of puzzle connect you know figure out all right bait fish are there the water temperatures are right this is where the fish are going to be and you put that puzzle together in your head and you've determined you know, in this body of water that you spent time on, this is where they're going to be at this time of the year. And then you try it, you put it all together and you try it using the baits that, you know, work at that time of the year. And I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's not as hard as people make it out to be, you know? And I think the connotation of it being the fish of 10,000 cats and all that really, you know, adds to the intrigue of a lot of other people out there, but the guys like us that are putting in the time doing it, you know, can really cut that learning curve down by, you know, putting those pieces of Apollo together. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, you're always going to find something. I mean, there's guys that are, that are going out and chasing bass and perch and things like that through the ice. Like, you know, I mean, they're, they're going to eat if you put a bait in front of them during the right time. So it's just a matter of, you know, finding the, finding the right areas at the right time. It's one of those things that you hear too, right? 90% of the water or 90% of the fish, 10% of the water. That's, you know, thinking about that kind of stuff and and structure in a lake and, you know, looking at a bathymetric map of a lake and cutting down on 90% of the water so you can focus on 10 and say that this 10% has the best chance of me contacting a fish. And then spending three days there, you know, spending a weekend there every, you know, a day there a weekend for three weeks and just see what happens. I mean, that's there's no better way, in my opinion. So in terms of Pennsylvania musky fishing, if you were to be looking for uh, what is the, what is the current Pennsylvania record? Let's just start there. 
Lewis Walker. 50, yeah, Lewis Walker Sr., 1924. That's right. I said Louis Spray earlier. Louis Spray is the guy from – he's like the Wisconsin guy who yeah. allegedly, like, you know, stuffed his muskies with with dead fish and whatnot, you know, with a tube. Stuff. Yeah, putting it – putting like stu- crushed fish down its gullet so it would weigh more. Yeah, yeah so, that so musky the, from Connie is a recognized record in Pennsylvania, and that fish has been uh, been the record since 1924, supposedly. But I think one of the questions that I always had about that fish was that when it was certified by the Boat Commission, it wasn't until later. It wasn't until after that fish had already been, um, you know, 1924 was when the fish was caught. It wasn't certified as a record until the 1970s, I believe. So, I think that was um, the same article I'd seen about that. Yeah, and I, and now I'm not sure, like I mentioned earlier with the Larry Ramsell, like that was um and mentioned this uh, the story was and I'll read it to you right now. Um, 1970, Jerry Munson of Meadville landed a 56 inch muskie weighing 48 pounds. At that time, state record fish were judged by length rather than weight. The Fish and Boat Commission listed a 55 inch muskie as the record. Munson immediately had his muskie's length and weight certified and sent a notarized letter to the commission stating he landed a new record. When the story of a new record muskie hit the Meadville paper, Lewis Walker Jr., president of Talon Industry, claimed his father had caught a larger muskie from Connie in 1924. The mounted fish was still on display in the Talon building. Walker had the mount measured and convinced the commission that the convinced the commission to recognize his father's 59-inch muskie as a state record. That muskie now graces all at the Linesville Fish Culture Station. So my question has always been, you know, after reading that article, was how did Lewis Walker convince the Fish Commission to recognize his father's fish as a mount? Like, you know, 50 years post-mortem. And that's yeah, that, it definitely uh, – I think that's part of the answer, honestly. Definitely a fishy story. Yeah. So – that that mount is that an actual skin mount of the fish? Do we know for sure? Yeah. So they were doing. Now there's also a story and... that I read that there was a fire at one point. I think I also know. read once that it was stolen from it was the stolen, and that the tail factory. was damaged, and that they needed to repair it. And and I feel like these are all questions that are. Is this real? Like, is this really like? Did we measure a fish like fifty years later after a guy? You know, like. I mean, and I, I think the thermometer they do in nineteen twenty-eight. Like, well, it's not our... going to get any bigger, right? I mean, the fish isn't going to get any bigger over the years. So, I mean, if, if there's, it's only going to get smaller. Well, if they're doing work though, like, I mean, who's who's to say that they didn't add three or four inches to the tail? Like, if the tail was damn it, quote unquote, who hasn't damaged, had three or four inches here or there? I mean, there's there's pills for that, but you know, it's like one of those things where I just, I mean, this is such a tough one for me because I look at that picture, that picture that's on the Trib article from like, what is that, 1924? Is that really it? No, that the one, one where he's holding it with the rope. Yeah, it's like a yeah. picture. 
I have vertical. I'm looking at it right now. Black and white. Vertical hold. Now, wait a second. You got it on a stick with a rope. <laughs> yeah, so 1924. I mean, that thing was, I hopefully, well, obviously, I wonder. They obviously didn't need it if they skin mounted it, right? They probably oh, shot yeah. it for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> this guy gets the THH award for sure. But my, I mean, so there was a fish that was caught after this, right? What, what did you say that that was? What was the length and, and poundage on that fish? 56 inch musky wing, 48 pounds. It was notarized and sent to the Fish and Boat Commission. So from what we, lake? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Did we know what from lake it's from? Yeah, also. Yeah. Oh, man. You need if, to fish there more, Ryan. Well, I've, it, I've it brings seen. us to the question. If, if, if you're looking for the, the Pennsylvania state record, where are you going to fish, Evan? Where am I going to fish? Yeah. Pimatuni. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I don't know. Probably Kinzoo. Edinburgh Lake. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm going to Conneaut. Hey, I just keep thinking about it now. I, I feel like break the 1924 record. So we've spent so much time on that lake. It's it's probably stupid. And I've it's never caught I've never caught a muskie on that lake. It's always pike. And and I think it's just the areas that we're fishing. But boy, I tell you what you're out on that lake and you see like, even when you're snagging weeds and stuff, you just see how I feel like the weeds are just beautiful on that lake. And I've said that out loud before. And I know like Dan has looked at me and been like, you're, this is such a stupid thing to say. I'm like, look how pretty these weeds are. That, I mean, but the lake, like when you're out there and you look at the watercolor, you look at the weeds, I don't know, man, it just, there's something about that lake that I absolutely love. And I just feel like, there could just be a giant fish hanging out there. And obviously yeah. there was one caught, what was it last year? Wasn't there a fish that was like upper forties or something caught there? It's very different than 58, 59 inches though. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> I, I get that. I understand that we're talking 10 inch difference, 12, whatever it is, but still though, you know, you, you have to have upper 40 inch fish in that system to eventually get to, you know, 51, 52, 53 inches. Like, I, I don't know that we'll ever see a 56 inch fish out of there, but who's to say there's not one swimming around right now. Like Donnie, you're like laughing at me, but there might be a freaking absolute giant in that lake right now. That's just swimming around, just eating everything, eating 45 inch pike for all we know. <laughs> the same thing. I think that, the biggest part of that is depth, and there's a lot of bodies of water in Pennsylvania that don't have the depth that those lakes have, you know, and mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that's always been intriguing to me, and you look at the bodies of water that produce those giant fish in its Georgian Bay, it's other areas that have the depth, and it's one of those things, those fish can stay away from, you know, can live full, happy, hungry lives in those places and, and just fill their bellies and really have that kind of, uh, you know, I don't know. I have, I have a question. Anglers, I guess. Yeah. Do you guys ever feel like that record's going to be broken? If it stands? No. I, no. It'd be hard. 
Can I read to you a quote from this is like to me. So Jim Burr, this to me, this is like Jim is to me a legend. I, I don't know why just local guy in our area, you know, a lot of history with Muskie's Inc. You know, Muddy Creek Fishing Guides, from what I understand. Um, Jim, you know, I've, I've only had the pleasure of talking to him maybe once or twice, maybe three times at some of our meetings. But this was a quote in this Trib article. Jim said, I do believe the record will be broken someday. It will have to come from a big body of water like Kinzu or Racetown or Prescott Isle Bay but I think it will be broken. And I just think, you know, looking at that quote and I, just knowing Jim, like not personally, but talking to him, knowing his history, those lakes that he named, you know, like have you said like Kinzu, like Raystown's another one. That's a giant <laughs> lake that's super deep. Prescow Owl. I mean, we got to believe that there's giants swimming around in Erie, right? Like, but, Just, but those are three totally different body. I mean, press, uh, I mean, Kinzu, uh, I mean, obviously that's a, a gigantic impoundment. I mean, you don't fish that the same way that you fish, you know, many other things. I, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, Racetown's the exact same thing. I mean, it's, it's gigantic impoundment where, you know, you've got, you've also got other giant, I mean, at least in Racetown, you've got these giant stripers. I mean, how, how these, you know, I'm sure there are a few very, very, very big muskies in Racetown. I think um, I saw 56 this year. Somebody caught out of there. So, you know, I mean, it's very, and they don't awesome. even really fish for them out there in the sense that you see guides out on Racetown that are like, you know, holding muskies up by the gill plate, you know, ver- vertical holds. It's like, listen, you, you like you fish on a lake that has, big muskies like you think you'd be expecting it but they're out there more fishing for stripers than anything else this uh, is, at least uh, from what i can see one of the neatest things i've ever seen was fishing on Raystown. they use live brook trout for bait <laughs> trolling trolling live bait and that and they'll catch anything from uh stripers muskies lake trout walleye Literally an incredible in, fish. There's lake trout in, in Raystown. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I feel like that's one of those moments where Donnie, do you remember from the Pima tuning tournament? We were we were out back by your boat and you held a bait up and Jordan like grabbed your hand and like pushed it down and said, Whoa, 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 don't show that to everybody. <laughs> I feel like that's one of those things where it's like, don't let anybody know they're using brook trout because that's our top secret weapon for Racetown Lake right there. Well, I mean, this is with a with a charter boat there that, mm-hmm. you know, they just do multi-species trips. But I thought that was... They didn't a, tell them where I, they're getting the brook trout. No, I'll, apparently some of the bait shops there have them, so... That's the key, right? It's a weird, yeah. whole weird system. Like, normally you can't get them, but then you can get a special permit for them for bait. Crazy. I agree with you guys, though. I don't think that record will ever be broken. I, I just think it's such an outlandish thing. And I, I for our waters, like, and I, I don't. If it is, uh, it may be broken by, like, you know, a guy with a bobber, you yeah. know, up in, up in Presque Isle. You know, 
where it it takes it takes the the walleye that they were reeling in and somehow they end up landing a 58 inch musky that is just an absolute freak of nature i mean that's that i could totally 100 see happening but my question with presque isle bay and that maybe this is a, a bigger question and that is you don't hear a lot of fish coming out of there even as bycatch you know so if we're gonna say oh that may be a place that you might have a state record coming from like you really do not see very many coming out of there where you know you there's a lot more guys fishing uh you know bodies of water like conneaut pima tuning raystown you know things like that you usually so see told them and like you really the, the three big names that we threw out there is places where we think a state record may come from are all places where you really don't hear of a lot of muskies being caught there's I think there's something to that as you're saying it. Like where, They're not where are we naming? Locations. We're naming Prescott Bay. We're naming Raystown Lake. Just like you said, they're not even really fishing for muskies out there. We're naming Kinzu. I mean, how many Kinzu muskies do you really hear about every year? Usually not a lot, but the ones you hear about are pretty big most of the time. Uh, it seems like those low, those big, vast, low density waters kind of what we're looking at in terms of if we are going to break a record that's where you're going to do it more than likely that's i think that's why you see a lot of fish coming out of there because guys are just turned off by the idea of not going and catching 10 muskie right. they, they don't want to go troll prescale fishing for a needle in a haystack but mm-hmm. like you said if that is going to get broke there it's going to be totally by accident probably some guy walleye trolling and yeah, you see like two or three upper 40s fish each fall with steelhead trollers. Catch them on spoons and they just catch them right. That just caught the trouble and not not slice the line or anything. And, Are we in agreement though that those fish that live out in that lake do come into the bay at some point in the spring? Whether I think they move with the with the shad. I would think they do, but I can't. I can't say that I know that they do. We I, think I don't have the body of work to 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 speak oh, on did, that. I don't did know. You guys, listen to the uh, to the backlash podcast that had Kyle Guron yeah. on from uh, and you know he one of his big points was like there are these fish that the only literally the only time that they that they make themselves really available is when they come in to you know in the winter in the early winter to get into the early the spot where they're going to be close to their spawning grounds and those fish literally will never you know he's talking about georgian bay but you know he's talking about fish that will never come within you know three miles of of land until november 15th or so when they're coming in they're going to stage for spring because they're staging for spring already you know from I, I guess from what from what i'm gathering there but yeah i mean you, if you have these gigantic bodies of water there's some place where these fish are going even on the smaller bodies of water there's some place where these big fish are going in the fall and in the spring that doesn't relate to their summer haunt so i guess that is really the question is can you catch one of these gigantic fish when they're off their uh their normal their normal pattern 
I think the key to that is being able to get one too while it still has its egg mass. So you want to mm-hmm. be able to catch that fish in as late of the winter as you possibly could. And I think that's going to be, you know, in Pennsylvania, obviously, where water from those drawdowns and second off because of um, the ice season. So if you get on the Kinzu and you're fit through the ice, um, that might be a, a chance that you have. But besides those times, I mean, I, I feel like you're limited just to the river just because of the moving water and, and the chances of it freezing over. Um, you know, I mean, obviously it does freeze over, as you've seen in the past, guys having success ice fishing. Um, but you know, I, I really do think that those are the opportunities that we're going to see. Um, and I think it's going to be, if it does happen, it's going to be in that early spring and it's going to be, you know, a better chance of it being from one of those the bigger reservoirs, like you said. And, it, and it's just one of those things like we talked about earlier in the podcast, just about, you know, uh, the bait fish. Like you said, I mean, Calgaron's fishing places where bait fish are moving too. So you're talking about fish channels, you know, that are coming from open water into these bays and, and you're just fishing structure. You know, these muskies are setting up on points because that, what muskies do they're predators and the bait fish are moving in so if you're a muskie you want to be there before the bait fish move to you so you're ahead of the bait and you're you know so it's all a matter of timing and water temperature and knowing those migrations of bait fish that's what we talked about earlier first well, one of us to get the new state record Gets a case of beer on me. <laughs> right. My money's on Evan. Yeah. Hopefully Good it's on a meter. Being recorded. New state record. Yeah. is on a Shaw's. We're going to say minor. I'm, I'm saying uh, meet the ball. Meatball. It's a me, Mario. The love. I know which one it's going to be. I got a, I got a blue meatball that's a hot big one. Fish just, uh, they like the taste of it. So the shad is that the blue shad? Whoa, 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 whoa. We'll just leave it at blue and we'll <laughs> generally a blue blue deep diver. It's a blue deep diver. It's a blue deep diver. I, I ruined it, but that's all right. Well, I, any color you want, as long as it's blue deep diver. You know, that's a that's always the thing though, is like you go to these these shows, like you go to Musky Max and you know, guys that are we got we got a couple of guys that are just getting into musky fishing here. Um, you know, they go to the booth and they see Evans, all these meatballs, like there's a couple colors there you might want to look at, but that's for another day. What do you guys think? We we want to wrap this one up then? Sure, we I think so. Up. I mean, I, I think I think we've covered a lot of the things that we discussed that you know we we wanted to cover. Evan, is there anything that we we haven't talked about that you'd like to throw out there? Honestly, don't think anything that I can think of. Yeah. Well, whatever is. Evan's been on forty-five podcasts in the last year. He's covered it all. (laughs) (laughs) I just was one of those things where it's like you know, I start talking and and I try to be leery of not talking about places and you know, like there's there's a lot of stuff that you know you know what it's like. Musky fishing is kind of secretive at times, and also you know. 
you don't want to be telling everybody everything so they flock to something or you know, well, like you said half the fun is there is is getting some pieces and then playing detective yeah. and putting together those pieces yourself until you find success your own little way yeah. but i think we've all agreed we all agree that the, you know one of the biggest things is finding other people that you can learn from. You have to, you have to find someone that you like, you know, if you don't have people to get gather those pieces from, you got to put the pieces together, but you got to have people. And if you're not attending meetings like Muskie's Inc or, you know, like Evan, you've brought up a number of different, like kind of the, the predecessors to Muskie's Inc um, in terms of organizational, you know, structure. Uh, you, I think, you've got to have stuff like that and you've got to get involved in stuff like that to meet guys that you can start to get the, the dots to connect, you know? And, and so I really appreciate Evan, you coming on here and, and giving us all the dots that you have that we can try to try to put together. And, and it's, it's been, been very entertaining for me, you know, as a, a fledgling bait maker to, to look, you know, listen to someone that's, I've been doing this for significantly longer and how you've created your business and, and done what you've, what, what you've done and it's impressive. And so it's, I guess it's, it's a motivation to, to, you know, get ready for the show season. And, and, you know, I look forward to seeing you at the shows and, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on here. Anybody else want to uh, want to say anything before we log off here? Thanks, Tom. Oh, Evan is a real fisherman because he went steelheading the other day. I saw, so he's he's a man of many talents. Oh, hell. Oh, I like you. We almost went the whole episode. We were so close. Tom, I know to tell you a story about 1998, sleeping in the back of a Plymouth Omni. All right, one of those little freaking <laughs> man. That was uh, in the parking lot of Walnut Creek. That was. Uh, <laughs> Those are the beginnings of that. I went to school at Penn State Barron, so I did a lot. Of, I spent a lot of time up on elk and walnut. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we. we yeah, well, Owen's the last one place. that has to make it out out of the uh, these six faces I'm looking at right now. He's yeah. the last one holding out on me. So maybe if you come with us one time, he'll join. I bought the permit for 2022. So after, after this talk, I just want to run steelhead colored baits in the bay. Mm. <laughs> yes now hey, we're talking you know i gotta uh i gotta i gotta thank a couple people here at the end of our podcast i gotta thank first and foremost we gotta thank we're gonna thank kayla tonight first Ooh, she's not here again tonight but she will listen she appreciated the last episode we're gonna thank kayla first and then we're gonna go and thank larissa Darn so our two sp- she's already met our two sponsors <laughs> Kayla and Larissa yeah. so special thank you to Swink Outdoors how about that one special Wait, thank how you how to come my wife doesn't get a thank you well because you I haven't complained a- about it yet till right now that's why <laughs> everybody else complains at me that I haven't mentioned Larissa and Kayla yet so we'll, we'll send a shout out to Chelsea we'll say thank you we'll say th- thank you Chelsea Swink how about yeah, that? She's definitely she my she's definitely my best sponsor. She she's funded a lot of this uh this uh musky stuff that goes on. So but does she listen? No, not at yeah. all. No okay, way. well we're gonna say we're gonna say thanks to <laughs> Don Swank Sr. Yeah, how about okay. that? Because he is who, a dedicated listener, probably who won the won the steel outing giveaway, by the way. 
on the trip. You better. He not was the only entrant. <laughs> <laughs> better not tease him with that, Tom, because he's looking forward to that. <laughs> All right, special thank you to Big O's Bocktails, our only hey, actual anytime. sponsor. Thank anytime. you, Owen. And Evan, thank you very much for coming on tonight and having no a good problem, discussion guys. with us. And uh, good talking with you. Thank you to Shaw's Bay Company for putting out stellar products that catch tons of fish every year. Thanks, <laughs> Evan. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, yeah, Evan. No problem. Thank you, guys. Take care, guys. You too. Thanks, guys. There goes. I had to shake them on my last case. Big O don't play. Oh.